Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Jonah 1, 17 through chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O oh Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the pastors here at LifePoint. We're continuing in our series of Jonah, and I have a question for you, and it's this. What would it take for you to cry out to God? What would it take? For some of us, uh, it takes very little. In fact, crying out to God comes naturally even instinctively. For some of us, you're late to work and you pray, it just comes out. Maybe you're taking a test as a student and you whisper that quick prayer, Lord help me honor you by bringing my best to this calculus exam. Maybe you see a beautiful winter sunrise with the gold and orange hues and just without thinking, you cry out, my God, what a beautiful sunset. God, you're amazing. For others of us, there's times in our life where crying out to God is actually the thing that happens when all the other easier options have run out. You ever experienced that? I will first see the doctor about this month-long cough. Only after, if the doctor cannot get me the medicine that I need, will I pray about it. Doctor first, prayer second. I will apply for three or four jobs, and once I'm turned down for all of those, then, then I'll cry out to God. Only when my credit card is actually declined, and it's a little embarrassing because of the financial mess I'm in, will I cry out to God and surrender my finances to him. What will it take for you to cry out to God? Still, for others of us, there are times in our life where we're stubborn. We're stubborn. And the only way we'll cry out to God is after we hit rock bottom. 
Have you ever been there? You visited rock bottom? For Jonah, rock bottom was the stomach of a big fish. And that's what it took. In fact, it's the first time in our prophetic narrative account when we finally see Jonah crying out to God. Why did it take so long? This is Jonah, the great prophet of the Lord. Eugene Peterson described the Christian life with a book title. It's a great book. And here's the Christian life. He says, it is a long obedience in the same direction. Jonah had the opposite. Jonah had a long and painfully slow disobedience in the same direction. Tarshish. In fact, uh, the writer of Jonah describes where he's headed over and over and over in chapter one. Did you catch it from the previous weeks? It's a literary device. He's using repetition to show where Jonah's going, and the word that's repeated is down. Down. Over and over. It's a euphemism for death, and it's where Jonah is heading. I'll point it out. You see in verse three, Jonah goes down to find a ship in Joppa. In verse four, he goes down, describing boarding the ship. In verse five, when the storm came, where does Jonah go? Down into the inner part of the ship to sleep. Down, down, down. A long disobedience in the same direction. We even see in our prayer, in our section today, in verse six of chapter two, Jonah says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. So low that Jonah describes the place that he's finally arrived as a pit. We might say today, Jonah hit rock bottom. Rock bottom. Very few people hit rock bottom overnight. Far more often, rock bottom comes after a long disobedience, one small decision at a time, in the same direction. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there? Now, when you see this prayer, and it's beautifully written, it's in prose, it, it looks like poetry. You might think here that Jonah is getting his metaphors mixed up. In verse three, he's describing sinking down into the waters and the waves are crashing over him. And then suddenly he switched to this different description. He describes roots of mountains, like bars surrounding him and a, a pit of dirt and earth. Why the water and then the dirt? To our modern ears, this sounds like mixing metaphors, but not to the ancient Hebrews. Remember, anytime we're reading the Bible, we have to cross a lot of barriers. We are crossing a cultural barrier as modern Western Americans read ancient Hebrew text. And we're also crossing a time barrier, centuries and centuries. The way Hebrew poetry works is a little different than our modern ears tend to see it. In fact, think about it this way. Even just a few centuries ago, people saw the world a little bit differently. In fact, they looked at the world a little bit like this. They thought the world was flat. 
Many did. And they thought if you sailed far enough, you'd get to the edge of the earth and right there you'd go tipping right over the edge. And we don't see the world that way, but that's just a few centuries ago. Now go many centuries earlier to a very different culture, the ancient Hebrew culture, and you might conceive of the world a little bit like this diagram, and this is the best picture I could find to try to describe how they saw the world. The world to the ancient Hebrews, land was more like a disc, floating suspended, surrounded by waters above and below. And the mountains were described as these root-like pillars that went down into those depths, kind of securing this floating landmass into the depths. Underneath the waters was this place called Sheol. It's underneath the foundations. Do you see that what Jonah is describing from his vantage point is not a mixed metaphor at all? Oh, he sunk past those waters of the sea so deep that he was hemmed in by those bars, those pillars, like a prison wall, where he is sunk down, down, down into the depths of Sheol. That's why he describes it that way. Look at verse two. It's such an appropriate word picture in our text. You see it in chapter two, verse two. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of a fish, a whale, a stinky something. He says the belly of Sheol. Don't you see how appropriate it is then? You see, for ancient Hebrews, Sheol was the place of death. (laughs) In mysterious, dark, murky waters. There's no snorkeling tours in ancient Hebrew culture. Nobody's scuba diving, and there is not the United States Coast Guard to come pull you out of the water. When you fall into an ocean, you're going down. And likely you're going to that place, Sheol, the place of death. Jonah fittingly describes himself as in that pit, or as we would say today, absolute rock bottom. Have you ever been there? Have you ever visited? Not Sheol, probably haven't thought of that. I'm sure it's lovely, it's springtime or something. Have you been to rock bottom in life? This is where Jonah finds himself. And so it begs the question, What should we do when you hit rock bottom? Some people get dirt underneath their fingernails as they try to crawl their way out of their pit. Others shout up asking for a shovel because they'd like to continue digging. Jonah, what does he do in the pit? Finally, for the first time, he prays. He prays. He turns to God. How should we pray from the pit when we hit rock bottom? Today, I I wanna learn from not the hero of this story, because Jonah's not the hero, is he? But I wanna draw out some principles and lessons today about what we should do when we find ourselves in the pit or rock bottom of life. And they have three words that help draw this out. I'll preview them. Sin, 
sovereignty, and salvation. What should we do when we hit the pit? How should we pray? First principle I see in the text, we must recognize our sin. That's what we need to do when we hit rock bottom. Were you listening carefully as Russ read this text? My first observation from the prayer of Jonah in the pit is not what's there, it's what's alarmingly not there. Did anybody see it? (laughs) Think about it. The last time Jonah had a conversation with God, the Lord asked him to do something as a prophet, and Jonah said, no. It's the last word he said to God, no. (laughs) Jonah and the Lord weren't on good speaking terms. In fact, he had to board a ship and spend many nights and days slowly running away from the Lord. He didn't board a 747 to Athens. This took time, deliberate, over and over again, disobedience from God. And he had chances, oh, so many chances to recognize his sin. And in fact, you remember the pagan sailors in chapter one told Jonah, a prophet, hey, why don't you cry out to your God? Maybe he'll spare us from this storm. Jonah doesn't cry out to God there. He had the chance, but he doesn't. And then finally, he's thrown overboard. He's in the belly of a whale. And even in this prayer, there's not even a mention of his sin. Not once, doesn't acknowledge it. Think about how you're feeling if you're the sailors. This guy put our innocent lives in danger and he wouldn't even throw himself overboard. We had to physically pick him up and as the sailors did, they said, oh God of Jonah's, his God, have mercy on us. We're desperate, but he won't do anything. Not once from the belly of the fish does Jonah recognize his sin. No confession, no remorse, and no repentance. This is strikingly ironic, and repentance is a theme in the entire book of Jonah that the author, he's trying to help us see irony. Jonah is this religious, godly prophet who stubbornly refuses to repent. What happens later when Jonah preaches a half-baked sermon to the, the city of Nineveh on day one? What do they do? They repent. Oh, the whole city repents. Sackcloth and ashes. Woe is me. We have sinned. The Lord, we turn to you. Do you see the contrast the author is drawing out? He's setting up the stage. The Ninevites will repent quickly and fully and Jonah will resist all the way, even at rock bottom. You wanna pray from the pit? Don't be like Jonah, he's not a hero. We must recognize our sin when we're in the pit.
Jonah's omission of acknowledging his sin is even more starkly contrasted when you compare it to other similar prayers. Hebrew poetry like Psalm 40. David prays this, look at the pit. It was quoted in one of Brad's verses that one of his disciples has memorized. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up out of the pit. The pit. What does David go on to acknowledge in verse 12? My iniquities, my sins have overtaken me. I cannot see. There's so many. They're more than the hairs of my head. He confesses fully, completely his sin. But not Jonah. Not Jonah. I wonder what your prayer from the pit is like. When you hit rock bottom, are your prayers more like David or more like Jonah? See, when we're confronted with sin, we have a tendency to minimize it, to downplay it, dismiss it, deny it. And this problem is likely because of our misunderstanding of the nature of sin itself. Think about how our modern culture views sin. I, I, would, I would say this, if you talk to the average person in Fort Collins and you said, what's humanity's problem? Generally, this is our modern view. People are generally pretty good. They sometimes make mistakes. And if they get a self-help book, they can improve themselves. That's human nature. People are pretty good. They're, they're actually pretty good people. They just make mistakes sometimes. The problem is this is not how the Bible describes our fallen condition. And C.S. Lewis, I think, draws it out well in his book, Mere Christianity. I've got the quote here. He says this. Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. That's our condition. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track and getting ready to start your life over from the ground floor. That is the only way out of our hole or the pit or a whale. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern is what Christians call repentance. How should we pray from the pit? I'm arguing today that we must cultivate a practice of repentance. We've gotta recognize our sin. We've got to cultivate this over and over. Uh, James 5.16, James instructs us. He says, confess your sins to one another and pray that you may be healed. That word confess is not a one-time event. It is an ongoing process. Confession of sins belongs in our tool belt of spiritual disciplines right next to regular prayer and regular Bible reading. You want to have a quiet time? You need a confession time. 
We should have practices of confession in our life groups and in our families. There should be moments of confession at the dinner table over spaghetti and moments of confession over a cubicle wall in the workplace. Because just like any other spiritual discipline, we must practice confession. It's an ongoing event. Martin Luther, the great reformer, the Protestant reformer, when he nailed his 95 theses to that door in Germany, do you know what the number one theses was? I'll quote it. He's got 95, I won't read them all. First one, what does Martin Luther say? Our Lord and Master Jesus willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The whole life. Ongoing, continual repentance. Tim Keller is helpful in pointing out how we should repent, how we should confess our sins, not in a religious way, but in a grace-saturated, gospel-oriented way. He says this, in religion, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so he will continue to bless you and answer your prayers. This is kindergarten confession. And as a dad, I see this all the time. You know, you're teaching your kids how to say they're sorry. They're, they just want the sucker that you promised them. And they know if I don't repeat the exact words that daddy said, I don't get the sucker. And what I really want is the sucker. That's religious confession. You're appeasing God so he'll continue to bless you. This means, Keller points out, that religious repentance is ultimately selfish, self-righteous, and bitter all the way to the bottom. Ew, yuck. But here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's what the gospel says. In the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ to weaken our impulse to do anything contrary to God's heart. That's why it's good to confess. That's why it's good to cultivate this as a part of a regular habit. One of the most formative years of my life was in college when one of my other roommates said, I wanna practice confession regularly. And so every Wednesday, we took our tray of food and we asked the leadership of the cafeteria to give us a back room that was private. And we sat down for lunch and we handed our other brothers, four other brothers, a sheet of paper with five questions that you wanted them to ask you every single week. Here are my sins. Here's a pattern of problems that I have. I want you to look me in the eyes and ask me how I did this week. And I'm gonna tell you. And it was terrible. It was awful. It was humiliating. It was so good. I grew in that season. Because I had a group of men that said, I'm gonna just confess, I, I sin every week, I sin every day. I need to cultivate a practice of confession. Here's why this is so important. I'm seeing this in pastoral ministry. I have seen people hit rock bottom and keep digging. I have seen people commit sins that are egregious, unthinkable. I have never seen them do it overnight. 
I can always trace a long disobedience in the same direction. If we cultivate a practice of confession with small sins, it will prevent the big ones and also help us learn to confess when we do screw up in a big way. This is repentance. And it is loudly missing from Jonah's lips when in just a chapter, the Ninevites will cry out in repentance. How should you pray from the pit? The first thing we need to do is recognize our sin. The second is we need to remember God's sovereignty. Look at the text, verse seven. Jonah says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. This is the second time he mentions the temple, and this is an allusion to prayer. Do you remember what Daniel did when he refused to stop praying? Daniel opened his window so he could turn towards Jerusalem and pray towards the temple. This was a common practice for ancient Hebrews. When you prayed, you oriented yourself towards the temple. So when Jonah says twice, I will look upon the temple, he's not saying he's gonna go on a cool trip to Jerusalem. He's gonna orient his heart, not from running away anymore, but he's gonna turn and pray to the temple. And he says, I remembered the Lord. Now this is a prophet of God. He's like a professional religious dude. Did you forget your boss? What does he mean, I remembered the Lord? It is not that Jonah literally forgot God existed. It's that he functionally forgot that God is God and he's sovereign. Don't you see in the story how much he's forgotten who God is? Jonah says no to God's call and then thinks for a moment of forgetting that he can run from God, from his presence. You see, he's forgotten God's sovereignty in that moment. And he finally comes to his sen senses and recognizes God's sovereign rule and power over every event in his long disobedience in the wrong direction. Do you see what he says? I'll give you some examples. There's sovereignty all over this book. It's coming, there's more. Right here, God appoints a fish. That's some pretty powerful control. At the end, God appoints, he talks to a fish and this fish spits him up. It's pretty powerful. But look what Jonah finally remembers in his prayer. Verse three. Jonah says, for you, Lord, cast me into the deep. Now, hold on a second. Let's get the facts straight. If you are doing a private investigation and you interviewed those sailors and you asked them, who cast Jonah into the ocean? You know what they'd say? Jimmy did. I want, he bound his feet because Jonah wouldn't throw himself overboard. And Jimmy and Timmy, Jimmy got the feet, Timmy got the hands, they did the one, two. Jonah was kind of a hefty dude and they just threw him into the ocean. 
Wouldn't it be more accurate for Jonah to say in verse three, for Jimmy cast me into the deep? He doesn't say that. Okay, well, you give him a little credit. Maybe he skipped over Jimmy, but in another sense, wouldn't it be true for Jonah to say, for I cast myself into the deep? Do you remember it was Jonah's idea? The sailors are going, what do we do? The storm's getting bad, and Jonah says, throw me into the ocean. So in another sense, it wasn't just the sailors who did it, it was Jonah who did it. Who's gonna get credit for what happens? No, 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 no. Jonah finally comes to his senses. He remembers that the Lord is sovereign and ultimately who cast Jonah into the ocean? Ding, ding, ding. Correct answer, Jonah. You, Lord, you did it. Finally, he sees it. He realized, God, you've been sovereign this whole way. I forgot you, but when my life was fainting away, I remembered it was you who cast me into the deep. It's your waves, Lord, that crash over me. It's your billows that pass over my head. You wanna pray from the pit? We need to recognize our sin and we need to remember God's sovereignty. Romans 8, 28, it reminds us, God works together all things, everything. He can appoint a fish, he can appoint the wind and waves, he can appoint a tree to give Jonah shade, and he can appoint a single worm to infect that tree and have it die. Everything under his sovereign control. If we want to pray from the pit, we need to recognize our sin and remember his sovereignty. Have you ever forgotten his sovereignty? You have. Let me give you some examples. Have you ever worried before? Like ever? Then you forgot his sovereignty. Have you been anxious? Is not anxiety a momentary forgetting that God's in control? <laughs> I'll point it out. Jesus explains in Matthew 10, 29. When he tells us not to worry, he says this. He reminds us of God's sovereignty. Don't you see those sparrows? They're not even worth a penny. There's thousands of them. They're so insignificant, but not one of those falls apart from God's sovereign control. How much more is he looking after you? Every hair on your head is numbered. This God, you, don't you see? Anxiety, worry, you've forgotten God's sovereignty. You, you feel like you're abandoned from God. Have you ever run away from him? You have forgotten his sovereignty. Psalm 139, from where could I go from your presence? Is there anywhere I could run? <laughs> if I go, I wish Jonah had read this one. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I go to the bed in Sheol, the dark place, there you are. If I take up the wings or a boat and go to the uttermost parts of the sea, there you are. You see, Jonah had a momentary moment of forgetting God's sovereignty. How do you pray from the pit? 
We must recognize our sin, and we must remember his sovereignty. And finally, we must receive his salvation. Look at the text, verse 9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Backing up to verse 8, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols, that's these lesser gods, that's anything else you look towards for hope or salvation, if you look towards that, you've given up your hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will repay because salvation belongs to the Lord. Only him. If you've hit rock bottom and you've lost every other hope of getting out, you might find nothing else, but there's one who's there. God, you'll find him at rock bottom. Nothing else can save like God. And folks, rock bottom, oh, it's, his, it's, it's a perfect environment for God to save like only God can save. Can he not? God was not depending on Jonah in any way to help with his own salvation. He couldn't even count on Jonah to jump off the boat. God had to appoint some pagan sailors to pick him up. Jimmy, Jimmy had to tie his feet and throw him into the ocean. Jonah didn't help at all. Can you, think about it this way. Can you imagine Jonah showing back up to the shores? He's back in Joppa. He smells. He's got a little fish vomit on his shoulder. And some of his buddies at the port are going, Jonah, welcome back. You have made great time. How'd you make it back here? Don't you see? Jonah was utterly incapable of saving himself. And so am I. And so are you. God's salvation is completely his. We have been rescued from a pit you could never get out of. Not a chance. You had as much of a chance as Jonah would without the U.S. Coast Guard in the middle of the Mediterranean. He's not making it out. Except by God's grace. Don't you see, if you find yourself in the pit, take heart. This is a great place for God to demonstrate how much he can save you. Jonah says, don't look to any idols. Don't look to anything else that could self-rescue no program for addiction recovery, although that's good to pursue. No government bailout for a check to get you out of your financial crisis, although sure, pursue means. No counselor to rescue your broken marriage because it's in a pit. Pursue the counseling. But if they're your God, you forsake steadfast love because salvation from your pit 
belongs to no one else but God. He must be primary. Where do you look for hope? In the pit. Only God saves. Jonah is a story that's meant to call us to repentance. And it's a great story. But there's something greater than Jonah. In fact, Jesus referred to Jonah to say, something better's come. In Matthew, verse 39, Jesus says this. He's speaking to these religious leaders, these Pharisees, and they're demanding another sign. And Jesus has given a lot of signs. He's raised people from the dead. He's healed people. He's turned water into wine. He's walked on water. And these religious leaders, they want another sign. Not because they have repentant hearts and want to turn to Jesus, but because they want to trap him. And Jesus responds this way. He says this to the religious leaders. An evil and adulterous generation seeks some other sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What's the sign? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And here's the point. The men of Nineveh, those wicked, evil people, repented at the preaching of Jonah. They will rise up in the generation and they will condemn this more religious generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Jonah had a half-baked sermon and people repented. And Jesus himself, the son of God, is calling people, repent for the kingdom of God is here and they won't repent. And, and God used Jonah to spend three days in the belly of a whale to save Jonah and a few sailors. But God will use Jesus to spend three days dead in the pit of death. And that three days will produce salvation for all who call upon Jesus. Something greater is here. And so I want to join with Jesus' words to our generation and call us today. Are you in the pit today? Are you heading towards it in that long disobedience in the same direction? Or is a pit of destruction in your rearview mirror and you can look back with gratitude? Wherever you are, I want to call us to prayer now. As we respond to God by recognizing our sin, remembering his sovereignty, and receiving his salvation today. So we'll respond in just a moment as we sing. I want to pray for us, though, as we do. Let's pray together. Jesus, I want to ask you to come in power now by your spirit and do a great work as you call us towards repentance. Help us now, Father, respond to you with soft hearts, longing to recognize our sin, that your grace would be even sweeter, to remember your sovereignty that you've brought us today right here to this place, and then to receive with gladness in our hearts 
the jaw-dropping grace that saves us by your work alone. So help us call out to you now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.